Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. Uh, We're in Acts chapter 1. We're going to begin this year by going through the book of Acts, and I'm very excited to do so. Um, Acts is um, the story of what happened after the Gospels. There's nearly 7 billion people alive right now. A third of them identify as Christian. A third of the world's population identify as Christian of seven, nearly 7 billion people. And it makes us question, how did something so massive and widespread begin? You think about when the church was formed, there was no money, there was no uh, proven leaders that could do such or construct such a movement or lead such a movement. There was no building for them to gather in. There was no technological tools for them to use to propagate the gospel. And so how did they do what they did? What was Christianity like in its infancy? What's the origin story, right? of Christianity. Well, to be fair, there was just a small band of followers, uh, and these disciples were kind of on a roller coaster of emotions, right? If you just think back with me, there was the hope and expectation raised by Jesus's life. Imagining following Jesus for three years. Imagine walking in his footsteps, walking right beside him, and seeing uh, people healed, and seeing um, uh, miracles happen, and restoration of health, and uh, and then uh, the, uh, the miracles he would do in creation when it came to uh, causing the storms to cease, causing uh, all of these different things, watching that happen, the hope and the expectation they must have had in Jesus being the Messiah who would save them from the sins would grow exponentially as they walked with him. And then, of course, the death, it all seemed to go so wrong with his horrible death, and they knew something like this might be coming, and yet it still shook them. And then only to turn right side up again with his resurrection, there's this roller coaster of emotions that the disciples went to. As we think through the book of Acts, Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. It's the second volume of Luke's writing. Luke is a physician. He was not an Israelite. He was a Gentile. He was a devoted companion of Paul, and the book of Acts spans a period of about 30 years. It takes us up to about 80, 60, or 61 with Paul in Rome waiting to appear before Caesar Nero. This is the same Nero that begun his infamous persecutions of Christians in AD 64, and so Luke's writings are simply the record of the church of God exploding on the scene. And so in many ways, the book of Acts fulfill some of the ideas and commands found in the Gospels. I want to share with you three of them. They're in your notes if you're following along. You can also follow along in the Bible app. Just go to the events page and hit search and you'll find our notes there. Uh, But by way of introduction to the book of Luke's, the promise of Jesus' church being built is answered and fulfilled in the book of Acts. When you look at Matthew chapter 16, this is Jesus speaking and he says this, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the promises of Jesus' church being built 
isn't actually fulfilled in the Gospels. It's fulfilled in the book of Acts. Uh, Also, the promise of the Holy Spirit's presence is answered and fulfilled in the book of Acts. Jesus, towards the end of his life, would drop these these hints and these um, uh, uh, moments of foreshadowing of what life would be like after his death and he was resurrected and he would no longer physically be with them. There was the promise of the Holy Spirit. We find it in John, uh, among other places in the Gospel. But here in John it says this, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Verse 27, And you also will bear, everyone say that next word, witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So this idea that the Holy Spirit would provide presence and power to them was also fulfilled in the book of Acts. It never happens in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John take us to the, uh, the death. It takes us to the burial, and it takes us to the resurrection, but it doesn't actually chronicle what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to provide presence. So two things there that uh, we see is fulfilled in the book of Acts. Thirdly, the command to go into all the world is obeyed and demonstrated in the book of Acts. You see, the Gospels end with this command, but we actually never get to see it happen in the Gospels. So we're going to see that. Matthew 28 says this, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Everyone say the first word of verse 19, nice and loud. Ready, begin. We never see that happen in the Gospels. This happens in the book of Acts. But the command is this, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what we find in the book of Acts is the fulfillment of these ideas, these teachings, these commands actually happen in the book of Acts. So here's the purpose of Acts. This is what is going to be uh, why we look at the book of Acts. So go into the inside of your outline we're going to kind of mark out the whole book of the Bible, uh, whole book of Acts for just a couple of minutes, and then we're going to look at the first eight verses this morning. The purpose of Acts is this: Acts tells us how God directs the expansion of His kingdom throughout the world through a spirit-empowered church, despite internal obstacles and external opposition. So, we'll take that uh, just part by part. Acts tells us how God, how do you understand the, the church is God's to direct, right? So, it tells us how God directs the expansion of his kingdom throughout the world. It's interesting because when we look at the book of Acts, we're going to see geog- uh, ge- geographically, um, by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, the gospel has reached Rome, We're talking in a span of 30, 35 years, the gospel reaches Rome. Which if the gospel reached Rome in in that time frame, we are talking about really the ends of the earth. We'll talk about that here in a second. It says this, uh, throughout the world through a spirit-empowered church. That means the Holy Spirit is driving, he's directing, he's teaching, and he is leading God's church. And we're going to see these internal obstacles and external opposition raise their ugly head at different moments that are crucial for the early church. 
And we're going to see how they navigated them. How many of you have some external opposition in your life with your finances, with your family, with your relationships, right? Right? They exist. So how do we navigate them? How do we navigate them when we are following Jesus with all of, uh, all of the sincerity and focus that we can muster, and yet there's external opposition interrupting our pursuit? How many of you are bold enough to say that there's also internal obstacles? Boy, there's parts of us, right? We're broken at the core and there's, there's weaknesses, there's brokenness in, within us so that when we follow Christ, even with all the right intent, even with all the right motivation, even with Scripture and good people around us directing us, how many of you get in your own way? Right? Right. So we're going to see in the book of Acts how did the church navigate both the internal obstacles but also the opposition that faced them externally. Now, uh, just kind of a disclosure, the book of Acts does not follow um, the entire full history of the church. Um, if you look at other historical documents, there are strong churches in Galilee and Samaria and Egypt that were crucial to Christianity historically. But what the Bible does in the book of Acts kind of focuses on what Luke alludes to in chapter 1, verse 8. So we're going we're gonna to start in verse 1 in a minute, but I want to read Acts 1 and verse 8 as we get started. In fact, why don't you help me? Let's read Acts 1, verse 8. Ready, begin. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now what's brilliant is Luke is kind of a, um, he's a brilliant author. And what he's done in the eighth verse of the book of Acts is he's kind of given us the outline for the entire book of Acts. So in your notes there, let's follow along. The first seven chapters are how the church starts. Everyone say, starts. We're going to see the very beginning of what the church looks like. So, this is Acts chapters 1 through about 7. And what you'll see here is the gospel of Jesus Christ is focused here first in Jerusalem. You see how uh, Luke says it in verse 8? You shall be witnesses to me. And then he gives the geographic area, first of all, in Jerusalem. So the first seven chapters describe how the church starts, what the gospel looks like in verse or in um Chapters 1 through 7. We're going to see the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We're going to see the beginning of the church. We're going to see all these people come to Christ and be baptized. We're going to learn about Stephen and his death. We'll learn about Philip. Then we get to Acts chapter 8 through 12, and this is awesome. Acts 8 through 12 describe uh, how the church scatters, right? So the church starts, and now there is external and internal difficulties. There's oppositions on the outside. There are uh, obstacles on the inside. And so through a series of events, the church actually begins to scatter from Jerusalem. Luke tells us this in verse 1 and verse 8. He says this, uh, you'll be witnesses first in Jerusalem, but then through Judea and Samaria. In other words, the surrounding areas. So this span of chapters is about five chapters or so. It's about Acts 8 through Acts uh, 12. We'll read about Paul uh, Saul's conversion. We'll read about persecution in the church and how they responded to it and how the church scattered. We'll be introduced to Peter's ministry and his mission. We'll see the death of James and the death of Herod. 
who was ruling. And then when we get to the final uh, few chapters, um, we see how the church is sent. The church sends people. What's interesting in Luke chapter, or Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Luke says, you're going to be witnesses first in Jerusalem, then we're going to be scattered and we're going to go into uh, Judea and Samaria. But then he foreshadows for us that the church is actually sent to the ends of the earth. We'll see Paul's missionary journeys. We'll see the work of Barnabas and Paul and, and Paul's time in Rome. It's fascinating. But this is how the gospel of Acts, or the, the book of Acts, is laid out. The church starts, it is then scattered, and then it is sent into the world. Okay, you guys ready? How many of you are with me? Verse 1, we ready? Let's do it. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay, Luke is writing to this gentleman named Theophilus. Everyone say Theophilus. Theophilus. This is uh, Luke writing to this man and what he's alluding to uh, well, first of all, let's talk about Theophilus. He's, uh, in Luke, he describes Theophilus as a most excellent man. But man, just once in my life, I'd like to be referred to as most excellent. Right? Wouldn't that be awesome? A most excellent friend, a most excellent fill-in-the-blank. Theophilus was most excellent. Uh, so what Luke is saying is he was an important man, most likely well-to-do, most likely... Um, had some funds behind him. He was possibly a Roman noble that uh, converted and turned into a patron. Um, here's the thing. Books and scrolls in first century were very expensive. Uh, not everyone could afford it. In fact, ancient books were generally written on these uh, scrolls of papyrus. And it was practical to have a scroll be the length about 35 feet. How many of you know why you wouldn't want to go past 35 feet? That'd be too hard to carry, right, Jessica? Yeah. So these books that we hold in our hands so easily, you think about 35 feet of papyrus rolled up, that would be the extent of the writing because it became hard. So they would write it in volumes if necessary if the length of what was being written was longer than that 35 feet. So if you look at most of the New Testament, most of the New Testament falls within that same kind of length of uh, a book. So when it came to Luke and he's writing down everything that's happening in the Gospels, he probably comes to Luke 24 and realizes, I'm running out of scroll. This is getting too long. I can't write much more than this. So at the end of Luke 24, he kind of ends the first volume, if you will. And then when he begins writing Acts, he kind of picks up where he leaves in uh, the book of Luke because it's volume 2. So we're going to go to the end of Luke in just a moment, but uh, that gives you an idea of why these things were so expensive. So uh, it was common for wealthy patrons to, um, to hire or to uh, have authors write these uh, kind of books. They would pay them, but they would also pay for the reproduction. They would grant others access to read them, and this was likely the scenario here. He's saying... Uh, o Theophilus, he's writing to this, this gentleman who most likely sponsored Luke's writing, and he says this, in the first book, what's the first book? Luke. He's talking about Luke. He's talking about the first book that he wrote. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. 
the book of Acts describes for us the continuation of Jesus' work. And the work of Jesus continues to our present day. I love how Luke writes this. He says, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He's already written about his life. He's already written about the death, the burial, and the resurrection. He's already written about um, him being um, betrayed, him being crucified on the cross. And yet, he still uses these words, I wrote about all Jesus began to do and teach. The, word that, the words he chose were on purpose because what we're about to read in the book of Acts is a continuation of Jesus' work. It's beautiful to think about that even after the resurrection, there was a continuation of Jesus' work. After Acts is written, after we get to Acts 28, and, and when we come to present day and we live our lives today, Jesus is still continuing to do his work in us. So, Luke is very careful. He says, I wrote about all the things Jesus began to do and teach. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Acts is volume two of Luke's writing. It's a sequel to Luke's writing. It's a continuation of that story started in Luke. When you go to the end of Luke in chapter 24, we see Jesus after the resurrection. We see two of the disciples walking from Emmaus, are walking to Emmaus, and Jesus shows up and starts walking with them. Think about it. This is after the death. This is after the burial. This is after the resurrection. This was the talk of the town in Jerusalem. These two disciples now are going to Emmaus, and Jesus kind of just shows up, and they couldn't recognize him yet. He was there, but he wasn't there. His presence was there. There was someone talking to them, but they didn't understand or know who it was. And basically, Jesus says, hey, what's been going on? What's happened recently? What are you guys talking about so intently? And one of the guys basically says, are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard? They said, these are the things that have happened. There was this guy named Jesus Nazareth. He was a man of God. He was a prophet. He was dynamic. He was blessed by God. He, and then all of a sudden, uh, he did all these great things for our people, and the high priest betrayed him. They sentenced him to death. They crucified him. And we had our hopes up that he was the one, the Messiah, the one who was going to save us from our sins. And then he died. And now it's the third day since it's happened. But now some of our women have completely confused us because they said they saw him. And he said that there was, they said that there was an angel and that we should know that Jesus is alive now. They were at the tomb. They couldn't find his body. They came back with a story that they had seen visions of an angel and that he was gone um, and it's interesting, if you look back to Luke 24, Jesus actually rebukes them in the moment. And he says, um, don't you see what has happened? Everything that you were looking forward to has basically come. They still don't know it's Jesus. It's an amazing story. Read it, Luke 24, this week. They invite him to stay for dinner on this walk. And he sits down, and they have dinner, 
And the way the Bible describes it is this. When they sat down and he broke bread with them. Pause. When was the last time Jesus broke bread with his disciples? The Last Supper. I, this is so awesome. The Bible says that when they sat down with this man who they didn't know was Jesus, and they broke bread. And I don't know, Jesus must have done something that was similar to what he did during the Last Supper because he broke the bread with them. And when they had broken bread with Jesus, the Bible says their eyes were opened and they realized who he was. I want you to think about the emotions of the Last Supper and all of a sudden they hear that someone's going to betray him and everyone's looking at each other. Is it I? Is it I? Who's it going to be? Jesus, are you, what is happening? Are you sure someone's going to betray you? We followed you for three and a half years. We all love each other. We're all committed. Are you sure? And now you're saying that this is the blood and the blood's actually your, uh, the, the wine is actually your blood and the bread is actually, like it was a very confusing night for them. Their heart must have been wrenched the expectations of what they thought the kingdom of God was going to look like was reduced to this last supper. They watched the death. They watched Mary watching her son die on the cross. They see him being buried. They gather together while he's buried, and they must have said, now what? What do we do now? And they waited, and they waited and on the morning of the third day, I love that Jesus chose women to deliver the message. And all of a sudden, these women run to them and say, what we were looking forward to happened. He's alive. The tomb's empty. We saw the angels, and it's alive. And now they're walking to Emmaus, no doubt to tell others, Jesus is alive. They have this guy that joins them on this walk and they don't know it's Jesus and all of a sudden they sit down and they break bread and their eyes are open and it's Jesus. You see the, the difference in the emotions? I would have loved to have been there for that communion where Jesus had the first communion after the resurrection and broke bread with the disciples. He gave them a very interesting piece of um, command. Luke 24, we're going to pick it up in verse 45, says this. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. At that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to his names to all nations. Say everyone, say all nations. Beginning from where? You should always drink, take a drink when the cap is removed, by the way. It says this, proclaiming his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Look at verse 49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Upon you but, what's the next word? Stay. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You know what the most difficult command I find in my life to obey is? Daniel, wait. Libby made homemade donuts yesterday. You're supposed to let them cool for 30 minutes. Wait. It's not ready yet. What you're about to enjoy, you have to wait. Jesus said, you got to stay in Jerusalem. Stay here. 
till you're clothed from on high. The story simply continues in Acts. After his death, he presented himself alive. The Bible says over a period of 40 days. He had face-to-face contact with people, talking to them about the kingdom of God, and yet he asked them to wait. Jesus had nothing else for the disciples to do other than to wait. Jesus knew that they really could do nothing effective for the kingdom of God until the Holy Spirit came upon them. So now we come to the book of Acts, and it says this, while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Israel, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Which, he said, you heard from me. The promise was from the Father. I love this because the promise from the Father can only be good things. The promise from the Father means that it's a reliable promise. You don't have to doubt it. You simply have to wait for it. The promise of the Father means we're his children and we're waiting for his promise, which is a beautiful thing. And it's a promise that is only to be received by faith, which, by the way, is the way of Jesus. Everything we receive from salvation on is received by faith. Jesus wasn't born in the way that anyone thought he would be born. He was powerless as a child. He was a baby, not as a king he came into this world, not as an emperor, not as someone who could immediately dethrone the existing parties, but he came as a babe. And for years before his own death, he would talk about the kingdom. He would talk about it in his sermons. He would talk about it in the Beatitudes. He would talk about it in parables. He would talk about it when he healed people. He would declare things about the kingdom of God. And now the disciples are on the brink of experiencing what the kingdom of God looks like. They endured the three years of sermons and parables and teaching, and they had to wait then. And now he had died, and now he was buried, and now he was resurrected. And now Jesus says, wait again? How much of our life has to be in this waiting? Spoiler alert, most of it. This is the way of Jesus, is to wait on him. So they said, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, I might be reading into the tone, so, but this is how I read it. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it time yet? Is it time for the kingdom to be restored? This was incredibly important. They knew Jesus had instituted what was known as the new covenant. They knew that the restoration of the kingdom to Israel was part of this covenant. And so they asked this question, is it time? Are we ready? Is it time? Because Jesus, to be honest, we were ready when you turned the water into wine. We were ready when you turned that party into um, the super party, the after party. When you extended that and you turned water uh, into wine, we were ready then. We were ready when we, uh, we journeyed through Samaria and you talked to the Samaritan woman and we went to town and you came back and the Samaritan woman said she was going to tell everyone who you were and you were ready to declare that you indeed were the Messiah. We were ready then for the kingdom. We were ready when John the Baptist was killed and we had to hear from that news and John the Baptist followed you and he, um, he was a prophet to us 
Um, he was weird and he was out there, but he truly believed the kingdom of God was at hand. And when he died, we were ready for the kingdom to arrive. We were ready when you fed 5,000 people. When we stood on that hill and all these people came and they were hungry and you met their immediate need, we were ready when you took those five loaves and those two fishes and you broke them and then all of a sudden we just kept on handing food to people and we thought we're ready for the kingdom now. We were ready when you went to that man who was by his mat and he was there for years and years and years and years and you simply said, man, do you want to be well? Pick up your mat. It's time to be healed. We were ready for the kingdom then. We were ready when you walked on the sea and we were all in the boat and Peter wanted to walk on the sea and he couldn't, but then you were walking and it blew our mind and we thought, man, if the kingdom of God was going to come at any other time, we are ready right now. We were ready when you entered Jerusalem on a donkey. We were ready when you prophesied that, that Zechariah said this would happen and Zephaniah said that this would happen. And all of a sudden, there you were on a colt walking into Jerusalem. Lord, we were ready and they sang Hosanna to you. And we thought, surely this is the moment that we get to proclaim you as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We were ready when you told us at dinner that one of us would betray you. And we thought, not another moment more. Not another moment. Let the kingdom of God come now. We were ready when they arrested you. When Peter sliced the ear off and we thought, we're ready for war. We were ready when you died. We all stood there. And we watched Mary cry as she watched her son die on the cross. And you, on the cross, you said, forgive them for they... They don't even know what they're doing. And we thought in that moment, we are ready for the kingdom of God to come. We were ready when the women came up to us and said, he's no longer in the tomb. And we thought, it's time. It's time. So Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Here's his response. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. The answer was, not quite yet. Here's the thing. Jesus is not being coy. He's not being difficult. But in his wisdom, he knew they weren't quite ready. It was Jesus who warned them against inquiring about the kingdom. Could you imagine in that time if he said, well, is, is it at this time you're ready to restore the kingdom? And Jesus says, no, you're going to have to wait. In fact, you might have to wait 2,000 years. That might have discouraged them just a bit. If they knew how long perhaps they had to wait for the kingdom. But Jesus had something else in mind. He said this, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but this is what he did promise. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In other words, instead of getting the kingdom... Or, instead of getting all the pieces of God's plan or purpose, we will receive the presence and power 
of the Holy Spirit. There's a prayer in your life, and you're probably thinking, Lord, is it time yet? I've been waiting for my family to be restored. I'm waiting for my kid to turn his heart towards Jesus. I've been waiting for my spouse. I've been waiting for the finances. We've been making good decisions. I'm waiting for my business to take off. I'm waiting for my uh, business to begin. I'm waiting. I've been waiting. Lord, is it time yet? And when we don't know the pieces of God's plan, when we don't know exactly the pieces of his purpose, God promises instead the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. If the national kingdom they wanted would be delayed for the disciples, the power they needed would not be. They would soon receive the power that comes with the Holy Spirit. Notice there, there's not really a command in verse 8. It was a simple statement of fact. There will be power, you will be witnesses. In fact, in the Greek, the words will be right there are in the indicative, not the imperative. That means for us, Jesus doesn't recommend that they become witnesses. He says they would be witnesses. The grammatical implication is this. The natural result of receiving this promised power is we would become witnesses of Jesus. The result of receiving this promised power of the Holy Spirit's presence and power within our life is this. You will now become witnesses. You cannot help become witnesses with Jesus' presence and with Jesus' power. And so uh, Jesus says to them, boy, the kingdom you're looking forward to is going to look different than you think it is. We're not quite ready, but this is what I'm going to give you instead. You will receive the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? You will be witnesses of what you've seen. Everything you've heard of and everything that you've seen and everything that was taught to you over the years, you will now become a witness of what Jesus has done. The the objections and the obstacles presented by the disciples uh, might be this. Uh, Jerusalem, are you sure, Jesus? This is where you want to start? Um, Do you realize this is where you were executed? Like, it feels like we should start somewhere else. Like, why would we go to Jerusalem first? Um, Judea, that's where they rejected your ministry. They didn't even want you the first time. What makes you think they're going to want you the second time? Samaria, Jesus, how many times do we have to tell you? We don't do Samaria. They do them and we do us, but we don't do it. Like, again with the Samaria thing, Jesus? The, utter more part, the uttermost parts of the world. What they failed to, to re- receive in the moment is God wanted a witness sent to all of these places and the Holy Spirit would empower them and us to do this work. You see, the kingdom of God is about God's power coming in our lives, from the Holy Spirit, and then you and I being witnesses. The story of Acts is this. It's about the power of God empowering God's people to be witnesses. When you are at a trial and you have a witness being called to, the witness simply talks about what they've seen, what they've heard, right? This is what a witness does. So for a few moments, I just want you to think about, oh man, your witness of who Jesus is. What have you seen God do? What have you seen him do in your life? It's amazing to me 
that Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 was a culmination of everything we read in the Gospels. Jesus healed people, and he restored people, and he uh, spoke love to them, and he, he loved the outcasts, and everyone who was an outsider, he loved, and every time he came into contact with someone who was uh, down uh, on their luck or who was an outside, e- outright evil man, Jesus met them where they were. All of these things that they saw happen in the Gospels, Luke 1.8 is the culmination of that. He says this, you will be my witnesses. Everything that I have done for you, everything I have taught you, everything I have spoke to you, I want you to be a witness and share your what? Testimony to everyone else. You will be my witnesses. Child of God, if God has done something in your life, you are now a witness. And on the witness stand of your life, what will your testimony be? What will you say? What will you testify to that Jesus has done? Or will you be this witness that is just silent? The natural result of following Jesus is this. You can't help but share what Jesus has done for you. So as we read through the book of Acts, it is not our goal to duplicate the book of Acts. It's not our goal to put our place, put ourselves where they were necessarily and say, oh, how does God do this again? How can we see God do this kind of miracle again? How can we see these witnesses happen again? But the goal of reading through Acts and studying Acts together is that we just continue the book of Acts. That we then be the spirit-empowered church that simply becomes a witness for who Jesus is. Man, these disciples, they had no idea what was in store for them. Jesus, is it, is it time? It might be too early to ask this question because we've asked you a lot of times before. But is it time now for the nation of Israel to restore their kingdom? And there might be something in your heart and you say, Lord, is it time now? And Jesus says this, You're going to have received my presence and my power. So when it is time for this to happen, you will be empowered and ready for it. Some things to think about, some things to reflect on as we think about these eight verses. First of all this, how does your life right now reflect the presence of the Holy Spirit? I want you to think about this in the next six or seven days as we look forward to next Sunday and we continue the book of Acts. How does your life right now reflect the presence of the Holy Spirit? What does that look like? That looks like praying in any moment. That looks like acknowledging that God's Spirit is with you even as we speak. That means in the morning when you first get up and you think you're all alone, you're not alone because God is with you and his Holy Spirit is right there. What does it look like for your life to reflect the Holy Spirit? How does it look like for your, your life to reflect the power of the Holy Spirit? We're going to read in the next few weeks what God's Holy Spirit, what his power looked like on his disciples, but 
Boy, the natural result of following Jesus is you'll have his presence, and then you'll have his power, and you will be witnesses. So what does it look like for the power of the Holy Spirit to be on you? It it looks like uh, being bold and praying for people when they need it. There's a great thing we should strive to do, that every every time the Holy Spirit leads us to pray for someone, we ask them if we could pray with them. You're like me, you have conversations, and there's moments where God says, man, I need you to pray for this person. And you're like me, you say, okay. And then God will say, maybe you should pray with them. And you'll say, huh? Like right now? We're at a restaurant, though. We're we're at a coffee stop. I'm at a red light, Lord. How do I pray with right now with them yeah i would ask you to to prioritize praying with someone in the moment that they need that's god's power all of a sudden leading you and guiding you and directing you i would say thirdly today as we just consider these verses as a witness of what god has done in your life what is your testimony so the way you answer that is this what have you seen jesus do what has he said to you? That's your testimony. And the more you ponder upon what God has done in your life and how he has spoken you, it causes us to want to hear from God more. It causes us to want to be there in obedience with God even more. I am excited to go through the book of Acts, but we're not going to rush through it. We're going to take these this narrative for what it is, and every week we're going to strive to hear, Holy Spirit, how can you empower us right now to be more effective witnesses? Holy Spirit, how can I live in your presence so that Monday isn't just Monday, but it's Monday with the Holy Spirit? That Tuesday isn't just Tuesday, and Wednesdays become different, and Thursdays become uh, days of impact. Why? Because we are living in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for you this morning. God Almighty, we are so grateful for preserved scripture. Thank you for Luke. Thank you for his willingness to write down and to chronicle everything that happened while Jesus was alive, but then also to chronicle everything that happened during the early church. Lord, if there's um, I was going to say if there's anybody waiting on you, but Lord, the reality is we're all waiting on you. For one thing or another, we're waiting on you. Father, I pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we live with the Holy Spirit's presence and with the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that the work of Jesus continues to this very day. And God, there will be moments in our life where we don't get all of the pieces of your plan or purpose. So Father, in those moments, I pray that your presence will be enough. That your power will be enough. Though Even though we don't know what, ha- what, what uh, is in store for us day to day or week to week, we rest that in the fact that we have your presence. Father, I pray for the type of witness that we are. 
I pray, Lord, that as we consider your presence and your power, that we would become these amazing witnesses of what Jesus has done, what he has said in our lives. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for empowering us to do this work. As we reflect, Lord, as we respond, Holy Spirit, I pray that there would be a spirit of humility and honesty as we pray, as we live out what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed for just a moment. I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward, and they're going to help us worship our Heavenly Father. But this moment right now is for you. We build in these few moments of our service for you to reflect and to respond. And so I'm going to read these three areas of our life to reflect and to respond. And I'm going to pause after each one. And I'm going to invite you to simply have an honest prayer with God Almighty. Our heads bowed for just a moment. First of all, how does your life reflect the presence of the Holy Spirit? How does your life reflect the power of the Holy Spirit? And as a witness of what God has done in your life, child of God, what is your testimony? For those of you who have never placed your trust in Christ, boy, today is the day of salvation. Scripture tells us neither is there any salvation under any other name by the name of Jesus. God made him to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. For God sent him, God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. For all have sinned, there's none righteous, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The thief, the enemy of our soul comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. Today's the day to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would live in your presence and we would live by your power. I pray that we would be effective in shining and in our witness for you. And I pray for those who have never placed their trust in you, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would tell whoever they came with to church or whoever they're watching with on the live stream that, boy, they have given their lives to Jesus. I pray that that would be the reality, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.
Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.